right. Well, I probably sound like an interesting uh, noise coming out of my mouth. I don't know how many of you have got this cold flu thing, but um, I'm out of bed today. So that's a, that's a good thing, and I'm glad to be here worshiping with everybody. If you've got your Bibles, open up to 2 Corinthians. That's where we're going to be. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 6. Um, but here's where we're, we're going to go today. A few days ago, I was watching a football game while I was putting in my floors. And they, they got all done, and they were asking the coach, you know, why'd you win, you know? And he gave the classic coach thing. You know what we had to do? We just had to go back to the basics. We had to go back to the basics. That's what we had to do. We had to, you know, keep the main thing, the main thing. We had to go back to the basics, you know? And he kept saying the same thing over and over again, which had to do something with, we had to go back to the basics. Now, I've never really understood what that means, like, in some ways, you know, like, what does it mean they're professional athletes? Like, how do you go back to the basics? But let me bring it to this point. So much of what Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians is just going back to the basics. All of what he's writing that has to do with what was going on in the church at that particular time, he just goes back in various facets and various forms, and he just starts reminding them. And here's what is going to be just a common theme of what I think he's going to hit on today, this idea of don't forget who you are. To forget who you are, his point is, is you forget who you are, then you kind of forget then everything. You forget what you're about and what God's called you to do and what God's doing. That who you are in Christ is a very important reality. And so he just keeps going back to it. He goes back to the main thing. I feel like I'm going to be like a coach today. Go back to the main thing, back to the basics. But really, that's what we're doing. Now, going back to the main thing, what he was trying to get to, especially in 11 through 13, is he gets all done and he just says, look, I've, I've laid everything out for you. I've put it in front of you. I've put out the basics. I've put out the main thing. He said, the only thing that's going to be restricting you from being able to come and to follow Jesus is really yourselves and your own affections. But here's what God always does and God's people that speak for him always do. You've got to choose. You can't do both. Now, let me just be crystal clear as we start off this morning, just to let everybody know, I really do think Paul is putting the dividing line in here. He's saying there's all these different ways, and you might want to put this from Jesus's words. There's this broad way that is this path that it looks so easy, but he said the end looks like destruction, but he said then there's this narrow way of following Jesus that looks so hard, but the end of it is life. Paul is saying, follow me as I follow that hard path. You're going to have to make a choice. Now, in doing it, what he's going to do is, is he's going to then tell them it's not only following him, but you have to then also understand who you're not going to follow, right? So you look at verse 14. If you look down in your particular text at the very beginning, or you can look on the screen, he's going to say this. Not only is it, I want you to follow me, but you got to make a decision not to follow certain other people, which has everything to do with these false teachers that had crept into Corinth. But he's going to say to them, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And I'm going to explain what that means in just a second. Verse 17, look down there. He says, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. 
Verse chapter seven, verse one, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness completion in the fear of God. In other words, now there's gonna be a means that not only do I need to follow Paul, but I've gotta make a clean break from my past. I've gotta decide there are certain people that are influencing me in a wrong direction. I have to break from that in order to follow Paul, in order to come after him in his heart. Now this is very important where he's going here. Let me just explain to you what he's not, so you can write this down and you can kind of have this in here. What is he not talking about? Well, this is one of the things he's not talking about. This passage has nothing to do with being married to an unbeliever. Now, I know oftentimes we'll talk about the fact about unequal yoke. Now, I think the Bible is clear that God's people are not called to marry outside of the faith. So I think you can go to 1 Corinthians 7 for that. But Paul's not talking about anything to do with marriage in this particular context. He's not talking about splitting theological hairs. History is full of splitting theological hairs. He's not talking about we can't do business, we can't go somehow to restaurants that are owned by unbelievers. He's not talking about our neighbors. Here's what he's talking about that you can write in your Bibles to kind of help you understand who are these people. He's talking about false teachers. The warning is to be careful out there of false teachers. Now, who are these false teachers? Well, in 2 Corinthians 11, he kind of explains to us who they are and what we're going to be talking about. Because coming into this, there were false teachers, and coming out of it, there's going to be false teachers. Look at verse 12. He says, and what I'm doing, I'll continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim their boasted mission. They work on the same terms as we do. And he's like, look, those people are not us. For such men, look at this, are false apostles, deceitful working workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, which is going to be a word we're going to come to, their end will correspond to their deeds. In other words, watch out for these people. So how do we identify these people then, Paul? If they're these people that actually just are like Satan, they disguise themselves, they sneak in in a certain way, just like Satan looks like the angel of light to draw us to himself, then Paul, how do we see them? Well, this is one of the ways I think Paul, later on in chapter 10, is going to tell us about them. He says, look, though we walk according to the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. Why? He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power, to destroy, look at this, strongholds. Here's where we can start identifying them. They are ones because we are going to destroy their arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God so that we can take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. In other words, and let me just go back there just for a second. It are these lofty opinions or arguments that stand up against the knowledge of God. Now, in this particular context, and this is so important, we were mixing, and the idea was, is we took Jesus Christ, we took Epicurean Corinthian thought, and we put it together, we kind of put it into that blender, and what came out of it was kind of an Epicurean Corinthian thought plus Jesus. And let me just say this, anytime you combine two thoughts with Jesus, in some ways they're more poisonous than if you would have just not included Jesus in the first place. He's saying, beware of people that disguise their sinfulness 
their love of this world, their craving after the things of this world, by taking it and putting a thin veneer of Jesus over it, be so cautious of them. Be careful of, and I don't know if you caught this in the news yesterday, a pastor bought his wife a 200 grand sports car. I told Lisa she would love it. At the end of it, they said, well, it wasn't a pastor buying a woman a car. It was a husband buying a wife a sports car. And not only that, but it was the sports car that the Lord wanted. Really? My wife quickly decided, I am preaching at the wrong church. (laughs) It's this insidious mix of somehow this idea that God wants me healthy and wealthy It's this insidious mix of taking what is an American dream and putting Jesus over the top of it and making it this religious kind of a form of uh, of Americanism that in some ways we are more American than we are followers of Jesus Christ. It's an insidious mix of success and wealth. All of these things that come together that who we are, Paul says, you mix Jesus into it and it becomes in some ways more awful because it's easier, more palatable for the Christian to take in. Paul says, this is what we stand against. Why, Paul? Now just, I want to just stop here for just a second. Gosh, why, Paul? It's just because we are the temple of the living God. Wow. special. Remember I told you he would always go back to the main thing. He was reminding us who we are. Those of you that are in Christ that are here this morning, you need to understand this. As a collective group of people, we are the temple. The temple is a special place. It's a place in which God chooses to dwell. Sometimes it talks about he, he dwells in the heavens and the heavens are his sanctuary. Sometimes we learn about the tabernacle in the Old Testament or the temple. We learn that Jesus Christ in John 2, he talked about this reality that you, you tear this temple down, I'll rebuild it in three days. He, he called himself the temple. Why? Because the presence of God was dwelling fully in man. We have the idea now with the church being there. And then even by the time we get to Revelation 20, there's no need for a temple because God is right there amongst his people. Do you understand how precious it is that Paul says, I'm calling you back to something. You are the temple. You're the place I dwell You're the place I made clean through the work of Jesus that I couldn't dwell amongst you because it was sin and and awfulness and there was so much rebellion against me. If I would have come and dwelled amongst you in all my holiness and greatness, I would have destroyed you all. But because of the work of Jesus in saving you and rescuing you and making you righteous and holy and clean, now I can dwell amongst you. You are the temple. Special. I died for you. Paul says that's who we are. So don't play games. 
I want you to not be unequally yoked, not because somehow we think we're better than people. We don't. If any group of people that should never stand and look out at the world and think that we're better than them, it is Christians because we understand that apart from the grace of God, we are nobody. We as Christians are the ones that should in no way yoke ourselves again, not because we don't think we're better, but because of this place, this group of people, I shouldn't say place, this group of people amongst who God dwells is a special place called the temple. That's why I think he writes in 16c, look down in your Bibles just real quick, you can see this. It's this promise that goes... <coughs> excuse me, all the way back to Leviticus 26, 11 and Ezekiel 36 that he says in there, and God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. It is a designation of God looking down upon this group, Ephesians 1, 3, that he chose before the foundations of the world. He promised them to send his son to redeem and to set apart them, to sanctify them, to give them the Holy Spirit as a seal of the day until redemption, to draw them to himself with the promise of his inheritance. He said, you are my people. Listen, Cornerstone, for those in Christ, you are the temple. You're a part of this long lineage of people that began all the way back in the garden, kind of the prototype temple, the original place in which humanity dwelt with God. And God's heart, just this constant echo all throughout the Old Testament was God's desire to be with people. And he creates the tabernacle and then it sacrifices and prayers would go all over this place as the means now of worshiping God and enjoying God and creating a union of a group of people around God. They were the temple. And then Solomon, when he built the temple that his dad couldn't build because he had blood on his hands, he then builds this temple to be this place not only for Jewish people, but now this temple where God's people can come in such a way to show off their God to the world to declare that our God is great. And then when that even didn't work, God sent his son Emmanuel, which means God with us to save, sanctify, redeem And whether we're talking the Corinthians or we're talking us, do you get who you are? Cornerstone is the landing point like Corinth and every other church that calls Jesus Christ Lord. It is the landing point to which the Spirit of God dwells, Paul says earlier. You are the temple. Paul never commands things without giving you promises first. Verse 17, he goes on and he says, since you're that temple, since you're this place to be made holy and pure and set apart unto God, I want you to go out from their midst. And again, we're not talking now about the world here because we need to be in the world but not of the world. He's talking about these false teachers. I want you to go out from them and be separate from them, says the Lord, and I want you to touch no unclean thing. I don't want you to touch this mixture of Jesus plus other stuff. I want you, in fact, to get rid of that other stuff, and I want you to learn to cling to just Jesus. That's how I want you to separate yourself from those things. Well, why, Paul? Because again, 
again, he's going to tell us now something of who we are. He says, then I will welcome you. And now watch this. And I will be a father to you. You should be sons and daughters to me. And I love this word, says the Lord Almighty. I've said this before. Remember how as a kid you used to say, my daddy could beat up your daddy? Ain't nobody can beat up our daddy. Right? Now in this, he grabs kind of a conglomeration of four different passages from 2 Samuel and Isaiah and Ezekiel. But he takes what was an adoption formula reserved for the Messiah, for King Jesus, and now he makes it plural to let them know that not only now are we, if you go back to verse 16, this group of priests that now are able to walk in and amongst this temple bringing about praise to God, but we are royal, and this is the way that I would put it. We aren't just any kind of priests. We are royal priests. We are priests from a kingly line. And in fact, you can fully call yourself, if you're a follower of Jesus, you ready this? If you're a man, you can call yourself a prince. And if you're a woman, you can call yourself a princess. Isn't that cool? Disneyland's got nothing on us. In fact, sometimes I wonder if all those longings to be the prince that saves the damsel in distress and defeats the dragon and the, and the girl that's just dreaming to be the princess, what if that's all deep within us and this longing desire to be who we truly are in Jesus Christ, princes and princesses of the king of the universe? You're a royal priesthood. That's why I want you to separate. Do you get who you are? Peter, when he's talking about it, he uses this word royal priesthood. He uses the concept of a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. But why? That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why does God make us this royal priesthood? Why does he set us apart? Why does he make us distinct and other, completely different? Why does he do it? Because he wants to now, doing a work as we begin to shun ourselves from all of these things plus Jesus and just embrace Jesus Christ and now worship the king of the universe is that in the midst of that, we put our God on display and we tell the whole world of his excellencies, this one that has called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. For the church to be the church, it must shun all those things, come to Jesus, make him the focal point of everything to tell people about leaving that darkness and coming into this marvelous light. We don't have to try to become the world. We don't have to try to look like the world, talk like the world, act like the world, though we should in order to reach them in some ways with our methods. But our message doesn't have to change. We are the people that have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Be who you are so that the world can leave what they are and to come into now this group of people that is the temple of God. Be that, Paul says. Just be the temple. Be who you are. 7-1, since we have these promises, I love that. 
Let us cleanse ourselves. Let us begin to learn who this King Jesus is and what he's about. And let's rid ourselves of those things. He says every defilement of body and spirit, anything that, that comes between me and, and becoming the person that God's called me to be and bringing, and I love this word, holiness to completion in the fear of God. Learn what it means to take some of those things off, Colossians 3, these things that hinder me from being able to truly follow Jesus Christ, but then bringing holiness completion. You put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We put on those things so that we can now become the people that he's called us to be. And, and I love this, bringing holiness to completion in, and here's the word, fear of God. That word fear, man, let me just say this real quickly. I feel like sometimes with the word fear, we've made it like reverent, like somehow it's like no big deal. That word fear is what it actually says. Our God sits in unapproachable light. Anybody that's ever stood in front of that God falls to their face. Horror strikes them. And we don't like that because we kind of want a sanitized God, a God that doesn't scare us, a God that we just have to, and here's the word we use, revere. No, Paul was revere. Get that? I've officially crossed over into dad mode, if you know what I'm saying. God is to be feared. In fact, in this passage in Philippians 2, it's one of my favorite passages that I've tried to meditate on. Therefore, my beloved, and I, I've added in the y'all there. As y'all have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out y'all's own salvation. Look at this with fear. And see that next word? Trembling. What is that fear? I think it's the fear that our God is so holy and he's so awesome that you would not dare to run from his call. I think if he's called us to be his temple, to be the ones that he is, we wouldn't dare look at him and say in any way that we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't play Jonah and run off to Tarshish when he's asked us to go to Nineveh. I think instead we would run to him without any strings attached. This is what fear is. And we would tremble at forsaking our birthright. We wouldn't want to be an Esau who sold our birthright as princes and princesses of the king of the universe. These priests that roam amongst the temple. I would never think of that God to sell my birthright like a cup of soup. And I would come in brokenness. And here's the crazy part. As I come in brokenness, I would find grace for my father, my dad. The more distant we come from God, the more horrible it is. The nearer we draw, we find grace in our time of need. Paul says, this is what we're doing. Now, on some levels, then, we might say to ourselves, okay, then we need to then work harder at this. We need to strive harder. We need to have more work to be able to become these people God's called us to be. We don't need to have more well-intentioned, working hard, trying to be Jesus. You don't work harder to try to become Jesus. You worship in order to be transformed into the image of Jesus. 
We need more people just to look and gaze upon the greatness of this God and the work of Jesus. This is what Paul's saying. Just go back to the basics. Just go back. So what happens if we don't? I'm going to have you back up to verse 14. And I'm going to show you five rhetorical questions that are going to answer this idea of it's got to split paths. We've got to go different directions. So he says, verse 14, ah, I'm sorry. He says, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now watch this. He's going to ask five questions. For what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? Answer, it doesn't. Or what fellowship is life with light with darkness? It doesn't. What accord is Christ with Belial? It doesn't. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? It doesn't. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? It doesn't. Paul's point is you got to choose to follow Jesus or go the other way. You can't have both. Remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus in Matthew? He came in and you could just tell he wanted Jesus plus something. What must I do to be saved? Do you remember right what Jesus said? Keep all the commands. He said, oh, I've done that since I was a kid. And then all of a sudden, Jesus went where? To his heart. All right, then. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. And follow me. And it says the rich young ruler what? Went away sad. He's talking about this idea that the two can't mix. So the first word he uses, this is word partnership. See that down there in that first question? That partnership has to do with identity or how I see myself. So we have righteousness or lawlessness. The second word he uses is fellowship, which is our practice of life with others. The third word he uses there is accord, which is an allegiance that defines our lives. The fourth word that he uses there is this word portion, which is our expectation or treasure or why I should do what I do. And the first, fourth fifth word that, excuse me, that he uses there is agreement, which is the cause to which one applies their life, their heart, that what's after. Now, here's what's going on in those five different questions. They're progressive in nature. So let me just walk you through them. Your identity and who you are, so this is why Paul keeps asking, do you understand who you are? Because your identity will dictate your practices with others. Your practices will begin to determine who or what defines your life. Who or what defines your life will set to, will set to be, we will set to be our treasure, and our treasure will always attract our heart. So his point is, is how you see yourself, your identity is crucial. Now, if you remember right, last week I mentioned this idea that I think that one of the greatest dangers facing Cornerstone is the idea of comfortability. I think me and I think all of us potentially could become way too comfortable outside of Christ. I don't think it's just cornerstone. I think it's the American church. I think it's our culture. Now, let me run comfort through this to kind of help you see what Paul says when he says, I want you to shun these things. I want you to get rid of these false ideologies or even people that produce these false ideologies so that you can be this group of people that is my temple. I think we live in a similar world, question one, as the Corinthians, for our desire for comfort. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing when it's found in Christ, because you go back to 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 11, we are to find our comfort in Christ. I think righteousness that he uses there, if you look down in, in, in verse 14, 
It's this idea of our declared status or who we are in Christ, our way of life. And so therefore lawlessness kind of describes it. He's just saying this idea when he talks about it is how do you define yourself? Do you see yourself as this righteous one or do you see yourself as this lawless one? Who you are, your identity is crucial. For Paul, the starting point wasn't comfort because comfort is what we start to long for. That's down the road. It's the outcome of what our perceived treasure is. But forgetting God's purpose and plan, who we are in that purpose and plan, and not only that, but our part in that purpose and plan is crucial. This guy named J.B. Phillips, I don't know if you've ever heard this line, your God is too small, probably needs an addition, that your church is too small too. Not in terms of numbers, but in our terms of our self-understanding of who we are in light of who our king is, Jesus. We're a people of the new covenant, this group of people that has significance in the end days of God's unfolding plan. That's why we went through the book of Revelation. Question two, so what fellowship is light with darkness? This light that he talks about earlier, he had said that there's God had now entered into Paul's life. He let light shine out of the darkness. And in letting light shine out of the darkness now, the idea was is that there's these practices, this fellowship that would start to happen in our lives. The moment that we define ourselves as either the righteousness of Jesus Christ or the lawlessness, however we define ourselves, will start pushing us one way or another. We'll start to have practices in our life that will dictate that. As we begin to find our, forget our identity as these righteous ones, who Paul will later call this temple of the living God, will start to contradict who we are in Christ, most times not even knowing it. See, over time, through our practices of doing things over and over, we inter- unintentionally, we begin to intermingle wrong ideas. We, we begin to watch movies and TV. And again, I'm not bashing TV or movie, but every TV show, every movie is trying to promote an idea. And in promoting that idea, we begin to take that idea in. We watch CNN, MSNBC, or even probably most of us in this room, Fox News, and don't realize that as we watch even the news channels, they are promoting something that oftentimes is telling you that it's Christ plus something else to bring your satisfaction. We walk in and amongst our community, and there's this world and there is darkness that is telling us You need to somehow have something plus Jesus to make you satisfied. We begin to craft a new religion that coddles our need for comfort in this world. It's not that we deny God outright, but we begin to distress his sovereignty, think that we need God and something else to get us through or to make us happy. Over time, these ideas and practices begin to make more and more sense, and our Christian friends begin to be or to become those who tell us what we want to hear. We hear that we need a better job, a better spouse, a better home. Shoot, I need my, my neighbor's home, a better vacation, so we mix God and a better job, God and a better spouse, and sure, we're going to split hairs over just minute theological issues, all the while kind of swallowing a, a camel to strain out, or whatever it is, strain a camel, swallow, a, I don't know, whatever Jesus was saying there. But everything becomes about fostering our comfort. And we don't even know it. Question number three, what accord is Christ with Belial? Belial was just this worthless opponent who sought to keep people, chapter four, verse four, from seeing the light of the glory of Christ. He was considered the chief of demons. 
whom Christ the Messiah, who's the climax of the battle of the Bible, has smitten. Therefore, we're either Messiah-possessed and dwelt new creations or still under the sway of the deceiver. See, soon without even knowing it, we enter into new alliances with our new Messiah. We, we have a wrong identity. We start to make practices in our life. And pretty soon we start to make a new Messiah, which isn't a Messiah at all. Actually, it's a Messiah disguised as Belial. And the problem with comfort that's not found in Christ is we need to do everything that we can to cultivate it and protect it. Our new Messiah affirms what we do and in affirming what we need to do. And now all of a sudden, these forming these new alliances with friends and with people, we don't even realize, but everything about our life becomes about protecting and cultivating our comfort. In a weird way, we begin to do what the rest of the world tends to do, which is to segregate themselves into little ghettos and bubbles so that we can safely hear our own thoughts echoing around in, our fa- in false comfort. We tell ourselves we have to do whatever it takes to cultivate and protect these comforts, even if it means rearranging our lives to have them. We draw this into our families and we begin to convince ourselves that little Tommy and little Susie will only find comfort in this life and be fulfilled human beings if we keep them in each and every activity, soccer, baseball, band, etc. because that is what we're told. Without even perceiving it then, we begin to fall into Belial's little dream, which is busyness. We're trying to cultivate and protect what only God can do, which is authentic comfort. And it becomes tiring and exasperating and demanding, and we're not finding comfort at all. We want comfort, but pursuing my new Messiah's dreams and desires is frantic and tiresome work. Question four, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? It returns to the opening command. But the idea there, portion, is this treasure. Our identity is wrong. When your identity is wrong, your practices become wrong. As your practices are going to become wrong, you start in a weird way to create a new Messiah that actually is Belial. And then at the very end of it, your treasure begins to shift. This treasure now that is so important to us used to be about treasures that were in heaven, but now Jesus even warned us that these treasures are not in heaven anymore, but these treasures are treasures on earth. Our relationships begin to have no eternal value, but they're based upon how it is that I might maintain my families and my comfort under this new Messiah that I create. It's not even a new Messiah, it's Belial. No doubt God's designed us for deep, intimate relationships, and we trade them instead for something that's more functional than relational. We bob and weave, and I was thinking about my own life like bumblebees from relationship to relationship, pollinating and being pollinated by lies of this new Messiah and the comfort we might get. Our Messiah keeps echoing in our ears, get everything you can from this life. You, you need a better job, a better car, a better house, more activity to get good comfort and a comfortable life. Don't miss out. Life is short. I don't know if you've ever felt like that before. Question number five, what agreement is the temple of God with idols soon? The church, if we're not careful, can just look like, just like the world worshiping idols of our culture under the guise of religiosity. Our ministries and our new ghetto are safety-based for our comfort. Our resources, our time, our money, our effort no longer go to advancing the gospel in our community or around the world, but instead our comfort. 
We could soon hire pastors, which by the way, I think pastors are part of the problem, which includes me. And they busy themselves coddling people's new messiahs and, and they respond now to our somehow these decimated lives because people that created these new messiahs, this messiah doesn't come through. And we, we create worship experiences that have my preferred communicator with my preferred music, with my preferred decibel level sitting in my preferred temperature. Our preaching and twist, teaching begins to be twisted to meet lunch pail needs and to give me some good that I can take home that allow me to keep walking with my new Messiah. Do I think Cornerstone is here yet? No. Could we get here so fast? We soon no longer care about what God cares about. Yet all the while we've convinced ourselves that we do. We go into Bible studies where we mentally coax out truths about this new Messiah and we kind of cover him up in such a way that our religiosity is satisfied. Our schedules become nothing about our, new, our, our life in the true Messiah. We become consumers that can just show up in church now having these expectations that you will meet my needs. And it's a dangerous place to be. Do I think Cornerstone's there? No. Are we on the precipice? I think every church in the United States is on the precipice. We can be satisfied that we're all comfortable and all the while we're not joining God in what he's doing in his grand purpose and plan. Has that ever happened before? I didn't do slides, so I got a lot to go through. Let me do this. One of the churches that forgot who they are went down an absolutely terrible path. In 1933, <coughs> about 100 years ago or so, for various reasons, the German evangelical church took on a nasty and hideous look. It had gotten to the point that it was so hideous and it was so nasty. They were so consumed by German nationalism. And I would even see this coming off the Treaty of Versailles. They wanted so badly for a rescuer that the church, even the church, if you don't, if you don't believe me, you can go back and look this historically. A majority of the church in 1933, the last free election, do you know who they voted for? Hitler. Why? because they were so desperate for a Messiah. In this desperation of a Messiah, they wanted one that would come and they would deliver him. Even one of the guys that, got, that felt that he could be the deliverer was this guy named Martin Niemöller. Doesn't he look like a shiny, good-looking dude? Niemöller. He was a U-boat captain during World War I. In fact, his U-boat was one that took out potentially more ships than anybody within his fleet. And in fact, when it came time for them finally to surrender, Niemöller refused to surrender. He wouldn't take his boat back to, to Great Britain. He instead took it back to journey, Germany and faced being court-martialed. He got out of the military and decided that he was going to be a pastor and a theologian because generally people that are court-martialed move into theology. He soon began to climb the ranks, became a well-known theologian and a pastor, and became the pastor of one of the largest, most fluent uh, churches within uh, 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 Berlin at that time, just on the outskirts. Like I said, in the last free election, he convinced his church to vote for Hitler because, and he would say this later in his life, 
because I was more consumed being a German than I was a Christian. In fact, you might know him for what he said in one of his most famous poems when he said, first they came for socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. He was culpable. He got caught up just floating through the Christian life. But in 1933, he began to wake up to the reality of who Hitler was. In fact, by 1934, after a meeting with Hitler, he had his final break with him. He had seen the insidiousness like Karl Barth had seen, like, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer had seen, where the church didn't even mean to, but they began to mix Jesus with other things. And as they began to mix Jesus with other things, it made the church so stale and so weak and so other. They had forgot the greatness of the God that Martin Luther had championed in the Reformation. And within a few hundred years, this church became emaciated to the point that it was willing to bring in their new Messiah that they had coddled, Heil Hitler. But Niemöller decided it was time to take his stand. In 1933, they had the celebration of Hitler's birthday. Can you read what they had for their plug? Hitler's fight and Luther's teaching provide the best defense for the German people. Luther must have been rolling over in his grave. But on that particular night, Niemöller stood in front of all of them and asked how tragic it would be if the devil had filled German minds with the delusion that they needed was not the grace of God, but instead the courage of Martin Luther. Here's what he proclaimed to the whole group sitting there. There's absolutely no sense in talking of Luther and celebrating his memory in the Protestant church if we do not stop at Luther's image and look at him whom Luther pointed, a Jew and a rabbi from Nazareth. Now to proclaim that in the middle of a bunch of Nazis is a scary thing to do. But he saw that the German people were beginning to mix something that was so hideous. See, if, I would, if anybody would have stood in front of those people in 1933 and said, what do you think about killing millions of Jews? They would have stood up and said no. But instead what they did is they stood up and said, what about if we just mix a little bit of Luther, a little bit of Jesus, and a little bit of Hitler and put them all together? The next e evening, man, in eerie fulfillment, of the words that he had spoken, 20,000 Christians under the umbrella of the German Evangelical Church, <coughs> led by bishops and regalia at the Berlin Sportpalast, began to gather to talk about what it is that the church was going to become in Germany. After a bunch of trumpets, they sang the hymn, Now Thank We Are God. Oh. Our Berlin pastor, Joachim Hassenfelder, announced that he was implementing the famous Aryan paragraph, the idea that white people, the supreme race in his church, that dismissed all Christian Jews from church office effective immediately. And during the evening, it was announced, among other things, that Ludwig Mueller would become the bishop, the archbishop of the Nazi church, and he was appointed the Reich bishop. Niemöller was suspended. The Bible was to be re-examined for all its German elements. In other words, we're going to get rid of all the Jewish stuff. We're going to de-Jew it. And that a proud, heroic Jesus has got to replace the model of the suffering servant. Hitler through Mueller was calling Germany to a second reformation because the church had become so emaciated and so weak. It could happen in the United States. 
groups of Christians in the South, the church was so emaciated and weak that we were okay with slavery. We were okay treating people of a different color wrongly. All under the guise of Jesus. But it didn't just show up. It showed up because the church, and here's the important part, forgot who they are. And so as I look at all of you that are sitting out there, over this next year, I've made myself a commitment as your shepherd. I'm not perfect, as you know. I've got a lot of flaws. But we're not going to forget who we are. You are the temple of the living God. The temple that is there so that humanity, sinners, can encounter the God of the universe. And I would say this, it's time for us to get very uncomfortable in this world and find our comfort in Christ so that we can be the people that God has called us to be. Does that make sense? Are you with me? All God's people said, Jesus, would you help us to be your temple? Father, help us to not mix Jesus plus anything in your precious name. Amen.